I don't know if you remember this, but some good time ago we had a lesson and uh, I was able to share with you one of my bucket list items. So before the good Lord uh, pulls me from this veil of tears we call earth, I would very much like to go down to Wilmington, uh, Kentucky and, and see the Ark Encounter. I know some of you have and I've heard good reports. It's, it's really a stunning uh, display and, and it, it reminds us of God's grace and, and what he did through even that difficult time. This morning's lesson actually affords me the opportunity to talk about a second item or second place that I would like to visit on my bucket list and that is Arlington National Cemetery out in Washington, D.C. And especially I'd like to visit this tomb and it's kind of the concept where we get to lesson, uh, This Unknown Soldier. And I provided just some of the basic information, you'll see that on the upcoming slide, but one of the things I found out about, and, and there was a lot of things I didn't know, um, it's actually been there for a hundred years, last year was the hundred year anniversary, and one of the things I hope that uh, I, and if my wife decides to go with, can participate in, there's actually a walking tour of the cemetery and of this tomb. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier walking tour here at Arlington National Cemetery tells the story of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier from its inception as an idea all the way to the monument that stands here today. In 2021, Arlington National Cemetery is commemorating the 100th year of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Since November 11, 1921, the tomb has been at the heart of the cemetery, a people's memorial that inspires reflection on service, valor, sacrifice, and mourning. A number of individuals who took part in the burial of the World War I unknown soldier, whether it was designing the tomb, bringing the unknown to Arlington, or participating in their funeral, are buried here in Arlington National Cemetery. The individuals and places included in this tour honor the unknown service members buried at the tomb, as well as those who remain missing in action. We are forever grateful for their service, and we will never forget their sacrifice for our great nation. So that's the promo for that walking tour. And one of the reasons why it, it's so intriguing to me, and these are just some of the details that I've put up there uh, in researching uh, a visit there. And, and to be honest, I feel a little embarrassed and even ashamed that there's so much about this I didn't know. Um, it is the most visited place in Arlington National Cemetery, the tomb itself. Yeah, even more so than, I, and I didn't know this, there's two presidents who are buried in Arlington National Cemetery, so I put them up there. And they don't get as much play as, as the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, a lot of people assume that there's only one unknown soldier buried there, but there's actually three unknown soldiers, one from World War I, one from World War II, one from the Korean War. It also commemorates the Vietnam War, and I, I'm guessing they didn't add that fourth body because of the Vietnam Memorial, which is now in Washington, D.C. I never knew what the, the three people or the three um, figures on the end meant. They're, they're Greek figures, so I should have picked that up uh, somewhere along the way. But what really intrigues me is how it's been constantly guarded since 46. And apparently the thing not to be missed, if you ever get a chance to go, or maybe you already have, is the changing of the guard. It happens very often, but it's done with such precision. And, and I also did some research. There's a lot of soldiers that apply to be guards for this tomb, and very few actually will make the cut. Um, not only because of the precision and the care that needs to be taken, but because of the honor and devotion that uh, is meant to be paid to these people who've given their lives in the service of our country. And interestingly enough, for as much information and for all that is, goes into this tomb, is the fact that there's these soldiers that we just have no idea who they were, even though they made this ultimate sacrifice. 
I begin this way because our lesson is very much like that. It talks about a man that we know next to nothing about, and he's not a soldier actually by profession, but I've termed him that way, and, and you'll see that once we dig into the text. Um, this actually affords us the opportunity to remind us that we're all Christian soldiers in God's army, in God's kingdom. And whether we get much um, fame from that or not is beside the point. Each of us has been given to this body of Christ to not only serve the head, our Savior, but then also to serve one another. And that's especially the point that Paul wants to make with the Corinthians because they had missed something along the way. Uh, we're going to talk about the special offering that was being taken. And somewhere along the way, their hearts just weren't in it. So let's read together, or if you will, follow along as I read our lesson today, and we start to dip into uh, our knowledge of this lesser-known man. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. Now, I have a suspicion that none of us probably have heard much about this fellow. Maybe even if you've gone through your Bible reading, read through the New Testament, go through 2 Corinthians. It's not one of those sections that just pops right out at you and you go, hmm, I need to remember that. Part of it has to do with the fact that there's a, a rather complicated context uh, that's involved with this even little short section of Scripture. What I actually did was took a picture of some of my notes in working through this text, and I had a whole page of you know, chicken and scratching, just trying to keep my own thoughts straight as to how this all fit into the New Testament church and where this fellow came from and who he is trying to discover as much as I could about him. Now, I'm not showing this to scare you, like this is going to be an overcomplicated message. That's not really what it's about. But part of what I'd like to emphasize for you is oftentimes we find that some of the most beautiful parts of God's word and the message in which he delivers to us isn't just in the verses themselves, but the very setting and the context, because within this context, we're already clued in on what it is that God would have us learn from this lesser known man. A couple basic facts right up front. Uh, this takes place during the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And all of this information is reviewable in Acts chapter 18, the tail end through Acts chapter 21. There's a couple coordinating passages in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So if you ever want to do a deep dive into this, just send me an email and I, I can share with you these notes and kind of help you through with the connecting of the dots. There's enough basic information here for us to start to put pieces of this puzzle together and to see why this man was such a great character, a, a good Christian soldier, if you will, and why he was called upon to serve. So our lesson actually takes place towards the end of Paul's time in the city of Ephesus. He had spent almost three years there and was enjoying his time working amongst the Ephesian congregation. But a couple things took place where you can tell the Holy Spirit is moving him along in his ministry. One of those things is, is that Paul received information that back in the mother church in Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters in Christ were going through some great difficulties. A famine had actually hit 
hit the land of Israel. And so everybody there was really struggling. Then you put on top of that the fact that there was a great Christian persecution going on. Jewish non-Christians persecuting Jewish Christians. And in essence, they were treating these Christians as second-class citizens. So you can imagine as help was being put out by the government or by the local communities, the Christians didn't really receive much help. And so there were Christians back in the land of Israel, specifically in the city of Jerusalem, whose very lives were put in danger. Many of them faced starvation and the loss of their business as well as their other livelihood means. And so they were really in a desperate place. And so Paul, along with the churches in Asia and the churches in the land of Greece, decided what they would do is that they would gather a free will offering and then send those gifts back to the land of Israel so that the Christians in Jerusalem could dispense those gifts and help those in need. So Paul decided what he's going to do, and his ultimate goal was the city of Corinth, but he was going to visit the churches that had been established in the land of Greece but because one of the main problems in the gathering of this offering was the Corinthian church, he has kind of a secondary plan. I've put the verse up there from our uh, epistle lesson just to remind you of how oftentimes we can start great projects and ministries for the Lord, and oftentimes because of our, the weakness of our sinful nature, we lose steam. Paul reminds the Corinthians that they were some of the first Christians to actually give to this special offering and that they were some of the most generous Christians wanting to help those back in the land of Israel. But as is often the case, as time goes along, they kind of ran out of steam. After a while, their hearts really weren't into it. They stopped gathering the offering. They just simply didn't finish the job. That's why they became the ultimate goal for Paul's journey, but he also sends Titus, his young co-pastor who had been working with him in the land of Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus, he sends Titus separately directly to the city of Corinth to help this offering along, but then ultimately really to reignite the hearts of the Corinthians. There's more to it than just that, more than just Paul taking off, planning to go to Corinth, and more than just sending Titus over to the city. And that's really where our lesson begins, because he talks about thanking God for the heart of Titus. And you need to understand what had just taken place. Paul, previous to this, had sent Titus to the city of Corinth because of other problems. And you can read about those in 1 Corinthians. And I've oftentimes reminded you that of all of the early churches, the one in Corinth is the one that struggled the most spiritually and even, if you will, culturally or socially as a congregation. There was so much infighting. There were so many little petty differences. And unfortunately, these are things that ultimately hurt this special free will offer for the brothers and sisters back in Israel. So Paul had sent Titus to Corinth already ahead of time, and Titus had just now returned to the city of Ephesus. And these two pastors loved working together. It was, it was a great team. Paul was the older pastor, Titus was the younger pastor, and Titus was given more and more responsibilities at the Ephesian church. But before they could really reunite and once again empower the ministry that was going on there, Paul sends Titus back back to the city of Corinth. In fact, Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians, not only was Titus willing to do this, he was excited about going back. In fact, it was actually Titus's idea that he be the one that go and help the Corinthians figure all of this out. 
Now, there's some simple facts that you need to take in mind here. Traveling in those days was very difficult, obviously. This was actually a 400-mile round trip from the city of Ephesus to the city of Corinth, and much of that was through the Aegean Ski, which could not only be a very dangerous route to travel, but oftentimes was very deadly. So if you just stop for a moment and consider, here's Titus who just made this perilous journey, just gets back home, barely unpacks his bags, and between him and Paul, they decide it's time for him to go back. He's going to risk his life again and go back to work with the most difficult of all early churches, and he's excited to do it because he wants to help his brothers and sisters in Christ to truly live out this concept of being the body of Christ. Titus is already showing us, and it's something that's exemplified in this unknown soldier, which we'll be getting to very shortly, is there is something about a positive attitude and true joy of doing the Lord's work. It has a greater effect on others oftentimes than it has on ourselves. And to, if you will, multiply this, if you will, attitude of gratitude and this joy of working for the Lord, Paul goes on to talk about the fact that he wasn't just sending Titus, but he's actually sending a three-man delegation to the city of Corinth. Obviously, they would need that much help, but there was something about these three men that just seemed to click and work together. Now, Titus is the only one that we know by name. And the third man we don't hear about until actually after our lesson in verse 22. Paul says, in addition, we're sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. We could have actually done today's lesson on the third uh, person in that delegation. We don't know his name. He's a lesser one, if you will, but he also shares a lesson. But he's very similar to the other two and not only the information that we have, but Basically, the reason why he's part of this group is because he has this great joy in his heart for working for the Lord, but a great love for his fellow Christians. The reason why we chose number two, the second man in this delegation, somebody that we also don't know, is because not only of what was obvious about his faith, but the way in which he lived it out amongst his fellow Christians. In fact, Paul talks about that. The churches churches in Asia and the churches in Greece decided he would be the perfect man to go along with Titus and this other person. Because not only did he have very strong faith, but he lived it. I don't know if you've ever run across people like that in your life, or maybe you are such a person, but you can just tell they are on fire for the Lord, and that everything they say and do, and while they also must struggle with sin like the rest of us, and they have to get on their knees and beg for God's forgiveness for all of the things they are not, more often you will find just this deep, great desire within their hearts to want to do the Lord's work, not only personally and individually, but also collectively as the body of Christ. This was such a man. He wanted others to be blessed and to succeed in working in God's kingdom as well. There's a few other things. Obviously, he's a fellow Christian. He has a great reputation. The reason why I refer to him as a soldier is one of the reasons why he was chosen is because as this offering was going on and the collection continued, it was turning out to be a rather large sum of money. And much like today, traveling with a large amount of cash can be very dangerous. And it certainly was back in those days. So he was sent in part to protect the offering, but there was something else. He was also sent to soldier 
to protect the integrity of the offering. You know that what can happen a lot of times, even within the realms of the church. Anytime money is the issue, anytime we're talking about funds or funding things, people might have pet projects, people might believe one thing is more important than another, and sometimes what God has given to us as a blessing and a means to work together, the devil will actually use against us and will divide us because somebody thinks this is a better idea than that person's idea. And in the end, they'll think, well, this is completely unfair and this certainly doesn't serve God. This man was sent specifically to ensure that this truly was the blessing it was intended to be and that in the end, the brothers and sisters in Christ actually received the help that they so desperately needed. Now, there's something else about this man, and while all of those things are easy enough to identify, it's something that this man and the others possessed. And it has to do with their attitude. Or if you will, and that's just a nice way of saying their hearts for the Lord. It has been a long time project of God to teach us that when it comes to our part in the work in God's kingdom, and our part in the body of Christ, he is far less concerned about what we are doing as he is concerned about why we are doing it. As a case in point, and a perfect example, I take you back to the very first situation, and that happens to be between Cain and Abel, the first children of Adam and Eve. If you go back and read through that early in the book of Genesis, you will find that they both brought gifts, offerings to the Lord. And as you read through it, you'll find that God was pleased with Abel's offering, but he was displeased with Cain's offering. And a lot of times there's questions about it, and it goes back to the first fruits part of it. But what really is being revealed to us is that God cares more about the heart behind the giving than the gift itself. In fact, God says to Cain he was displeased with his giving, and that he better guard his heart, because if he wasn't careful, it was going to lead him into deep, dark sinfulness. And that's exactly what happened. Of course, that's the first record of the Bible talking about the sin of murder as Cain slays his brother. It's a lesson that is still very difficult for us to learn and to put into true and genuine application into our lives because one of the first temptations that we face as we bring our gifts to the Lord is, and forgive me if, if this hits too close to home because I fight these things too, is anybody seeing what I'm doing? or as I give my offering and it doesn't seem to be acknowledged either by other people or the pastors, sometimes the temptation is, well, why did I even do this in the first place? Does anybody care? Does anybody notice that I love God so much that I'm willing to make this sacrifice for him and for you? You see, what begins as a well-intended gift for God is an easy target for the devil to make us almost become conceited and even find reason to complain that maybe our name wasn't spoken enough. And that's why these lessons are so beautiful, because they are lessons from the lesser known. People who didn't stop and ask, why isn't anybody patting me on the back? Why isn't my name on a plaque somewhere on the church's wall? Why isn't somebody putting me up on their shoulders and carrying me through the town having a parade for me? Because it's never about us. It's about God. Case in point. And this is just something you don't see unless you actually can work through the original language. The word that is translated as offering here in its original is the Greek word charis. Now, I've talked to you about that before, and I know these aren't the kind of words that just stick in your memory. But charis is the word that normally is translated in our New Testament Bibles as grace 
which we know is the, simply the undeserved love of God. And it is a proper and good translation. However, in this context, it goes one step further. It's not only God's love given to us, but it is fully God's expectation that once that love touches our heart, it changes our hearts and we respond in kind. That we truly do have an attitude which is grateful and shows gratitude for God. Acknowledging that everything we have comes from him in the first place and all that we're actually doing is giving back to him what already belongs to him. But we look for the opportunities and we do so with pleasure and joy knowing that God doesn't need my piddly pennies. What he really wants, what he's been after the whole time is my heart. Now here's the thing. And here's where the lesson really comes to us. These three men, and specifically this unknown soldier, did their work even in the confines of an offering and in the area of money with such zeal and joy that they could only send one message, that they loved working for the Lord and they loved their brothers and sisters and working for them and with them. If you've never been taught this, or if you've been taught it and you have forgotten, oftentimes what we do has far more of an effect on others than it does on us. And that's why we began this entire study with the look at the body of Christ. Everything each of us does, of course, first and foremost, is before the Lord. But it genuinely and truly does affect each other. Let me show you a clip, and it's not a religious clip. It's, it's just a logical, practical clip of the way in which God has created us, and you can see this principle in action. A moment ago, we made this volunteer believe she sunk a pair of blindfolded free throws, when earlier, with no blindfold, she missed 10 in a row. How will she do her second time at the line, now that she thinks she nailed those blindfolded buckets? Oh, close! <laughs> so close, so close, that's number one. All right, keep it going, keep it going. Oh! She's definitely getting closer, but no baskets yet. You got this, you got this, you got this. Oh! Yes! Yes! Oh, you. Oh, oh, oh! Wow, by making her think she sank those blindfolded shots, and by cheering and giving her positive reinforcement, it's almost like we hacked her self-confidence and got her to believe more in her natural abilities. In fact, out of 10 shots this time around, she ended up making four. Quite an improvement. Right, I actually chopped that video short. What they go on to do is actually show the opposite, negative reinforcement. They, they have a guy who started with nine out of 10 that he made. He's pretty good at buckets. They did the same thing to him. Uh, they put the blindfold on, he missed. Uh, I think he made less than four out of 10 the next time. And, and I'm not smart enough to know all the psychology of this. I just know the principle is true, that we can actually influence the lives and the thinking of others, not so much by what we do, but the attitude with which we do it. I'm, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the power of positive thinking. And, and it's real, and it's part of how God has hardwired us in our creation. If you are affirming and positive towards other people, that also has an effect that's positive and affirming to them. 
And of course, the opposite is true. If you're always negative, if you're always telling people they can't do it, if you're always finding reasons to complain, that has an effect on others too. And you know that they spend much of their time uh, in a very negative and dark place. Well, if it's true for us in ordinary day-to-day life, you can bet it's that much more true in our spiritual lives. If we are spiritually encouraging, if we are on fire for the Lord, if we share that kind of zeal with one another, you can't help but go home feeling uplifted and invigorated because you got brothers and sisters in Christ. you got fellow soldiers who are fighting the same battle. And there's nothing better to know that than somebody's got your back and they're pushing in the same direction you are. But then also you run into those people who find nothing but problems. They forget about God's grace. They forget about all the blessings that God has given. There are those well-intended people, but they seem to always have a negative attitude. And that rubs off and affects us as well. The point is is that God chose these three men, and specifically this one guy that we don't even know his name, because he's sending them to a place that oftentimes found the worst in everything, the congregation in Corinth. These three on-fire guys for God go in there, and they relight that fire. And, And in fact, ultimately, the offering is completed. And Paul actually is able to gather it with the rest of the church's offering and take it back to the land of Israel and really help those Christians who were struggling. In fact, that's the way it closes. We want to avoid any criticism the way we administer this liberal gift, for we're taking pains to do what is right, not just for God, but also in the eyes of men. In in fact, that complaining part, it's this interesting word, to, to carp to discredit. Basically, it seems like whenever we're talking about money or finances, even in within the arena of the church, it seems to be that one special area that the devil works overtime because for some reason money and blessings are so precious to us in this earthly life, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be important, but we forget that it's God's money, it's God's blessings, and God just allows us to use these things while we spend time here on earth, and it's not just what we're doing with these things, it's a it's why and how we're using these blessings. These three go into Corinth and remind them, hey, everything you've got is God's. They don't have some slick stewardship presentation. What they go is is hearts of love that expect that the Corinthians are going to respond with the same gratitude towards God's love as they have responded. And they remind the Corinthians that they don't just have everything that God has given them, but they have the greatest gift of all, God's love that has shown itself in the gift of his son. If God gives us this gift of eternal life, why wouldn't he give us every other blessing that we need? Just like in the Old Testament with the Israelites, they had to learn the hard way that God isn't going to give us too much and he's not going to give us too little. He's going to give us the right amount. Whatever that is, he expects hearts of gratitude. But he wants that to be organic. He wants that to be natural. He doesn't want us to be lectured or reminded you should be grateful. He expects that when his love touches our hearts, it's going to change it in that same way that that positive thinking did for that gal shooting the buckets. There's something about lessons like these, and especially we're barely into this series on lessons of the lesser known, and I'm constantly blown away by God's timing. It happened with last week's lesson. It happened with this week's lesson again. The timing could not be more perfect. It's not a stewardship sermon. It's not a money lesson. It's a gratitude lesson because we need to be reminded 
of these very same things that the Corinthians were reminded of. Because let's be honest, right now we're going through some fairly desperate and dare I say depressing times. Um, <laughs> I've, I've whined about this before, but I'll, I'll whine again. I, you have to feel the same thing pulling up to the gas pump. And I've seen so many memes and, and jokes about it. I saw one guy uh, cancel his cable and he went to the gas station to watch TV on the little monitors there. That's the only way he could afford it. And it, it gives you a chuckle, but part of you go, man, I, I, will I make all my bills this month? Can I, can I still put something in my retirement? These are real issues that we deal with much like the Corinthian church dealt with. And so what an invigorating reminder that everything we have is God's. And God promises, I, I'm not going to leave you in the lurch. I will take care of you, much like he did with Israel and the manna and the quail. But it's more than that. It's more than just a reminder, everything we have is God's, and God always takes care of his children. It is a valuable lesson in how we look at the things that we do have. Are we truly grateful? Or somewhere along the way has culture so influenced us that we always expect more? We're never happy, or we always find a reason to complain. Do we ever get to that point as God's children to just say, God, you've been so good to me. Can, can I just have a moment to say thank you to you? And, and truly, we can never return to God what he's given to us, but that's never what he's wanted in the first place. All he really wants is our hearts. The perfect example happened this week. And of course, I, I don't know that anybody hasn't heard about the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade. And, and what struck me was not only is this a momentous time in our nation's history, but I had to stop and think about the thousands, if not millions, of Christian soldiers who have been praying and working for so long to actually restore true justice to our nation and to protect the lives of the unborn. The nameless people who've spent hours at call centers trying to advise and help people to go in the right direction when it comes to their unborn children. Uh, the professionals who've gone to school and, and have dedicated their lives to being available and willing to counsel those who are struggling at that time in their lives with such a, a momentous decision that life is to be protected. Life does matter regardless of what gender or race you are. All life truly matters to God. So much so that he gave his one and only son to get our lives back. We have true reason to give thanks and praise to God. And of course, the work isn't done yet. Um, there's still so much more to do. But think of all of the soldiers who have fought the good fight. And it took a long time, but God truly does keep his promise and fulfill his word to bless the efforts of those who zealously work on his behalf. Because it's not only a gift back to the Lord for all he's done for us. It is truly a blessing to each other. You will never know this man's name this side of heaven. But I can hardly wait for that day that we're just walking around in eternal glory and we bump into him and we can start asking him some pretty serious questions. And, and I, I don't know what he looks like and I don't know what family he comes from, but in my own mind I can actually picture a smile coming across his face when he talks about his time with the Corinthians. Because basically he takes them by the hand and pulls them along and despite their kicking and screaming, God uses him, this nameless man, this lesser man that we don't know this side of heaven, to truly make an impact on their lives and ultimately on their eternities.
The lessons from the lesser known I'm finding are actually quite simple. That the things the Holy Spirit leads us to do really have less an effect on our lives as much as they do affect the lives of others. Know this week that as you go about your business, it is God's business. And he's going to give you opportunities to face whatever life challenges or opportunities you might have. And what it's going to come down to you in that moment in time is not what you're doing, but how you're doing it. I pray we can follow the example of this unknown soldier and affect other people's lives too.